welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Up oh, there we go. That little switch that makes all the difference. Hey, it's good to be here. I kind of think of this as my uh, church home away from my church home. So uh, thank you for your repeated warm uh, welcomes that you give to me. Uh, the book of all books, other than the Bible, in my opinion, is Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody read Pilgrim's Progress? What? That's true. You've never read that. Okay, 1678, uh, a Baptist, uneducated preacher who fixed pots for a living was in prison for 13 years because uh, he refused not to preach. And during that time in prison, he wrote most of what's now called the Pilgrim's Progress. When it was published, uh, it became an immediate success, and it's been now translated in over 200 languages. And you haven't even read it yet, but that's your assignment for this week. It's really easy to understand. Uh, You know, sometimes classic books are hard. This one's easy. It's about the lead character's name is Christian. And Christian lives in the city of destruction, and he meets a, a man named Evangelist. Remember, I told you, it's easy to understand. And he says, do you see that wicked gate? And he says, no. And he says, well, how about the shining light? And he says, I think so. He says, follow that light. And the the whole story is basically the story of Christian's pilgrimage, pilgrim's progress toward the celestial city, toward heaven. So he leaves the city of destruction. He meets all kinds of different people that their names are not subtle, like talkative, Lord hate good, doubtful, timorous. Uh, all, All these different people come and there's all these temptations, but he keeps on keeping on. The Christian life is a journey. Well, you've been studying the book of Ephesians since uh, January sometime, and we might say that we are now in the Pilgrim's Progress portion of Ephesians. Paul has spent three wonderful chapters talking about what God has done for us in Christ. He's called us. He's chosen us. He's predestined us. He's adopted us as sons. He's seated us in the heavenly realms, with, and, and he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We were dead, and now we've been made alive. It just goes on and on. You've been formed into one new body. You're, you've become a temple in which God lives by his spirit. I mean, it is simply a cataract of good news about what God has done for us. If you were to start in Ephesians 4 and skip Ephesians 1 to 3, you'd miss the whole point of the letter. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are a response to what God has already done in our lives. God has done this, Paul says, now go and live like it. Okay, one of Paul's favorite words in chapter 4 and 5 is the word walk. Paul says, we've turned a corner now in my, in my letter, and now it's time for you, well, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he starts to describe this pilgrim's progress, this Christian walk. In verse, uh, where are we? Chapter 4, I'm a little lost. Four, verse 17, Paul says, Now I say this and testify it in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. 
in the futility of their minds. The high point of this Christian walk comes in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now watch the word walk in these verses. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. Nor should there be filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, there's the word again, as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord." Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For if anything is visible, it becomes light. That is why it says, wake up, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. And church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Okay, this high mountain peak of Christian living my wife and I are hikers. We, we love to hike. And one of our hikes, we do it probably once a year. It's called Gaviota Peak. Anybody know where Gaviota is? When you come down the coast, you go through that tunnel right before by Santa Barbara, by beautiful Santa Barbara, by one of the few places that might even surpass beautiful Carmel. I don't know. I don't know. I, well, let's not vote on that. But, but you, right there, that's Gaviota. And there's a hike that we like to do that it's all one direction. And you end up on Gaviota Peak. And when you get up there, you can see the Pacific Ocean. If there's waves, it's, you know, you think, why am I here with my wife? I should be surfing out there. And, and you know, it's just a great place. And then you go down the other side in San Inez, and it's just a beautiful hike. 
the, the peak is kind of why you go. And this is the peak of all Christian discipleship, to be imitators of God. This is not new, by the way, in the scriptures. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's kind of a tall order. <laughs> Remember what Peter said in his letter. He said, just as he who called you is holy, you be holy in everything that you do. And then Peter quotes Leviticus chapter 11. God says, you shall be holy because I am holy. So the calling of the believer is really, really high. We are called to be like God. The older King James translation of this didn't say to be imitators of God, but to be followers of God. That's the wrong translation. The Greek word is to mimic, mimetai in Greek. Mimic God. If you want to get good at something, you mimic someone who is great. So my wife and I, Lisa, that's my only wife, we were... <laughs> Why did I say it like that? But we, we were coming home from uh, Wyoming. We were on a backpacking trip about two years ago. And we had the most wonderful experience. We're driving along a pretty narrow road, and we had to stop because a whole bunch of cows, cattle, were crossing the street. And there's cowboys, and they've got their hats on, and they got their, you know, scarves and, and their whips and all this. And they're, they're moving the cattle. There were probably six cowboys that were moving this whole herd of cattle and as we looked, we saw one little boy who was about 10 years old, and he was doing a pretty good job. His horse looked massive because he was so small, but, but he was mimicking the grown-ups. He was becoming a cowboy in his own right. He was following their example. The same wife that I was just talking about, uh, she's learning how to play the cello. And it's kind of a, a mid-early 60s thing for her. And so how do you, how do, you do that? What, how do you learn anything in, in this day and age? You go to YouTube, right? And so she's got her cello out, and she's got her tuner. And, and the, the instructor, who's a master, is showing her how to hold the bow and, and how to move it and where to put your fingers. It's, it's the student following the master. If you want to learn how to play golf, you don't look at me. Uh-uh, that won't work. You hire somebody for 100 bucks an hour, and that person will tell you, keep your eye on the ball. You think, oh, I, I can learn that for free. But, that, you know, but then you, you look, and, and you, you watch the swing, and you watch where the knees go, and the shoulders go, and the head drip, and all that stuff. And the, the instructor basically is saying, do it the way that I do it. You mimic the master. Well, Paul here is telling us that we are to actually mimic God himself. We are to be like God. It's a stunning thought. It's a radical command. Uh, Paul is telling us we can be like God. We will never be God, but we can be like God. Dramatic, isn't it? Well, how? Well, first of all, Paul says, we are to walk in love. We're to walk in love. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. We're called to walk in love the same way that Jesus walked in love. How did he do that? He gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God the Father. What? He gave everything. I like the old King James translation. 
He was an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. The language is from the temple, where you took the lamb, you slaughtered the lamb, and you put it on the, on the barbecue, if I can put it like that. And the odor went up. These were meat eaters, and it smelled really good. And Paul says the sacrifice of Christ smelled good in the nostrils of the Father. Very dramatic. And we then are supposed to emulate that love. Main point today is that we who know and love Jesus, we are to be like God. And the first path to that is to walk in love. Jesus gave everything. Our walk of love is not sentimental. It will cost us a good deal. It will cost us everything from time to time. Now, Paul moves from that command in verse 2. It's kind of surprising, but he moves from that to immediately talking about sex. He has six prohibitions that that come at us in rapid-fire succession. Sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. He says, not even to be named among you. Paul is saying that the pure walk is a holy walk. And when we imitate God, we will walk in holiness and we will separate ourselves from all that is contrary to God's revealed will. So let's look at those three words at the outset in verse 3. Sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia. The older translations used to translate this as fornication, but we've all forgotten what that means. But uh, porneia, sexual immorality, in the New Testament generally refers to premarital sex. Sometimes it's an umbrella term to refer to any kind of sex outside of marriage, but there's another Greek term for that, and that's called adultery. But, but sexual immorality refers to premarital sex, but then Paul moves on, same verse, he talks about all impurity, akatharsia. That almost sounds bad, doesn't it? Paul uses this word, akatharsia, six times in his various letters, and the word is coupled with sexual immorality to emphasize the kinds of sexual sexual degradation that was common in Ephesus and is increasingly common in Monterey County and Santa Barbara County. Paul has in mind any sexual perversion other than the God-given sexual relations between a husband and a wife in the context of marriage. Let me say that again. Paul has in mind with this word, any sexual perversion, a perversion is is the tainting of something that's good. Any sexual perversion other than God-given sexual relations between a man and a woman within marriage. Akartharsia covers a multitude of sexual perversions, same-sex relations, polygamy, polyandry, incest, rape, pornography, bestiality, And if you want a list, go to Leviticus 18 this afternoon. Your eyes will pop out of your head as to how thorough the scriptures are in discussing what we shouldn't be up to in our sexual uh, relations. Now, before I go on, let me have a little caveat. Maybe some of you who are not too familiar with the pages of the scripture, you might be thinking, what? What's going on? It seems like God is really anti-sex. Get this. God loves sex. He made you. He made your body. God loves orgasms. Did I say that in church? 
That, that works really well at a wedding, by the way, to use that line. <laughs> well, he does. There are only two commandments in the garden for Adam and Eve. Don't eat of the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and make babies. Be fruitful and multiply. Don't ever think that the Bible in general or God himself is squeamish about the joy of sex. God is all for it. He created it. Sex is good, but it's not ultimate. It is good, but it is not God. Sex, this is perhaps the most radical thing that Christians believe about sex. Sex is something that we can actually live without and still have a full life. In fact, have you ever thought about this? We worship a virgin, a virgin who had the most meaningful and full life that has ever been lived, Jesus of Nazareth. So, so while sex is good and it's a gift, it is not ultimate. It is not God. Our society simultaneously manages to overvalue and undervalue sex at the same time. We overvalue sex by saying, well, you can't live without it. And any kind of sex that you desire is not only permissible, but is necessary and good for you to be a fulfilled person. Any sexual appetite that you have must be fulfilled in order for you to be true to yourself. And the Christian says, that's just simply not true. On the other hand, our society devalues sex by treating sex as just one appetite among many, like eating and drinking and sleeping and walking and talking and having sex. And the biblical sexual ethic says God has given us this gift of sex and sexual pleasure for our flourishing, for our fruitfulness in the covenant of marriage. And to imitate God, Ephesians 5.1, is to walk in holiness of life, in purity. Now, you might think, oh, well, in the Bible times, it was not a big deal. He didn't know what our times are like. Let me tell you something. Ephesus was far down the road of sexual license from where we are. Ephesus was home to the temple of Diana, or the, uh, this temple of Artemis, the Roman name, Diana, the Greek name. This temple was massive, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, four times the size of the Parthenon on the Acropolis at Athens. That's one of the great ruins that you can ever see anywhere in the world. Four times that size. It was knocked down in the third century, so you can't see it now. But they would have daily, or I should say nightly, orgies there that were part of worship. People came to the early service. It was a great thing to do. So, so don't think that Paul isn't aware of, of sexual promiscuity. He's very aware of it. My friends, we are in the midst right now of a sexual revolution that is gathering speed uh, at, at in increasing momentum. In the 1960s, we put bumper stickers on our car that said, make love, not war. Sounds kind of nice, and well, why not? But we thought that we could have sex, and it would be free and easy and without consequence. 50 years later, what we got was the Holocaust of abortion, no-fault divorce laws, so that most 
children in America are not growing up with two parents all the way until they're 18. The normalization of same-sex relations, AIDS, and a host of other sexually transmitted diseases, a massive decrease in the rate of marriage, a massive increase in the rate of childlessness, We have sown the wind and we are reaping the whirlwind. So that right now, in Monterey County, there are doctors that think it's a good idea to give puberty blockers to 11-year-old girls who are uncomfortable in their bodies. And other doctors who are performing top surgery on 13-year-old girls. And these things are irreparable, they are irreversible. We think it's a good idea to put men in women's prison, and then we're surprised at the notion of rape. We, we think it's a good idea to put men in the pool with women, and then we're surprised that the women are a little bit upset. We are not that different from the sexually charged church of Ephesus. And Paul is instructing believers that, that we are to be different that a new way of life is prescribed for the new people of God. And friends, we are not ashamed of this because we have the conviction that God's will is always good news. Always good news. Now, Paul says in verse four, instead of the crude joking and filthy talk and so on, he says, let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? I think in context, he's saying thanksgiving for the goodness of sex within the context of marriage. Later in the passage, he's going to tell us to give thanks for everything. But right here, he's saying, you give thanks for what God has given you in the context of marriage. Now, if we faithfully proclaim this, I'm going to suggest we will be despised. 50 years ago, not quite, 48 years ago, I was 19 years old. I was working at Chuck's Steakhouse. Anybody remember Chuck's Steakhouse? The Chart House, Chuck's Steakhouse. It was the good old days. And I worked at a Chuck's Steakhouse. I made a fortune. I had more money back then than I do now. I made $5 an hour in tips. Oh, man, it was a lot. And so in those days, it was all waiters, and we would sit around before work and sit around after work, and we would banter and talk and get to know each other. And I was a 19-year-old kid. I loved Jesus. And so I announced to the group as they would talk about their sexual escapades, I just said, well, I'm a virgin and I plan to get married as a virgin someday. Well, you can imagine what they would do with that. They just began to mock me and I enjoyed the mockery. And, and um, I sensed deep down inside an approval of the way I was living my life. I, I, I sensed that while they mocked me, they thought, that's kind of cool because they were, had all kinds of problems, and I was waiting for marriage. If you fast forward to our time, put the same kid in the same restaurant with the same waiters, somebody who could articulate a Christian view of sex and sexuality, that young waiter will be, der- will, will be deemed as hateful, bigoted, the equivalent of a racist. But we have the confidence that God knows what he's talking about, God's will is always good news. And we're going to pay a price for our convictions, I would suggest. My great concern is that the American church is, by and large, not talking about this 
along with Christian institutions and Christian publishing houses. We're just avoiding it, hoping that it goes away. The third word Paul brings up here, and we're going to go quickly toward the end, I promise, but is covetousness. Why bring that up here? Does Paul change the subject? I don't think so. The 10th commandment forbids coveting, back in Leviticus chapter 11, but it forbids coveting certain things. To covet is to want something desperately that God doesn't want you to have. And the, and the commandment is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife. Paul is calling for purity. In verse 5 and 6, would you look at that? Paul sounds a clear and strong alarm. People who do these things have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you. No empty words. We are living in a time of empty words where so-called believers are denying the truth of the scripture under the guise of scholarship or under the umbrella of inclusion. And Paul says, don't be deceived. The wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. I have a friend, I have several friends, but uh, I have a friend who uh, claims to follow Christ. He's about my age, and he is living a very sexually profligate life. Because I love him, this took place about three, four years ago. Because I love him, and he's my friend, and he claims to know Christ, I said to him, I said, I want to spend an hour with you, and I want to talk to you about what's going on. And he told me, hey, the kind of guy would just go pick up women at the bar and do what you do after you go to the bar and over and over and over again. And I, I just went through these scriptures, these kinds of scriptures for an hour. And I said, I said, the pattern of your life makes me wonder if you've really ever met Christ because you have no sense of, of shame or repentance. You're just pursuing this. He said the most interesting thing to me, I'll never forget it. He said, I don't think Jesus is realistic. Yeah, it's a good response. God's will is always good news. Does this mean that we never stumble in our Christian lives? It doesn't mean that at all. But true Christians, when we stumble and when we fail, we repent. And we have a broken heart and we say, God, I can't believe I slipped into this sin or that sin, whether it's lying or pornography or adultery. We say, God, what happened? Will you forgive me? I never want to do that again. Well, we're almost there. Walk in love, verse 8, walk in the light, which is basically just the inverse of what we've just looked at. It's to pursue what is good and right and true. And then thirdly, in verse 15, walk with care. As believers, we are called to live our lives intentionally and to, to go back to that Pilgrim's Progress picture, we're to look where our feet are landing and realize where the path will take us. Because when we sin, we get on a new path and boy, we would do well to look at where that path has taken us. So how do we do it? Walk in love as Christ loved. Walk in the light as opposed to the darkness. Walk with care as opposed to, to drunkenness. How do we do it? Paul saves the best for the last. What's he say? Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk. That'll, you won't walk very well. Be filled with the Spirit. 
Paul is speaking of the third person of the triune God, who is God himself. And, and as Tim has taught us, at, at conversion, we are sealed with the Spirit. Every believer in this room has been sealed with the Spirit. Sometimes that's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But Paul brings that up in Ephesians chapter 1. We've been sealed. That's a one-time event for every believer. But as believers, we have an ongoing joy to be filled again and again and again with the Spirit of God. So a couple of weeks ago, Amanda preached. I loved her sermon. And she, she talked about the aorist tense and the present infinitive. I'm, I was so impressed. And I thought, well, if she can do that, I'm going to talk about the present tense and the passive voice. Don't you think that's fair? Huh, it is fair. So, so this, this verb here, when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, he's using the present tense. We could over-translate it, be being filled with the Spirit. You don't get filled with the Spirit once. We are always to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So I've been, for decades, I've been getting up in the morning, reading my Bible, and my, my Bible reading is kind of a cross between prayer and just reading, and I just kind of take what I, what I see and take it to the Lord in prayer and allow that to be kind of a time of, of prayer. But every morning, I will say, Lord, I am a distracted, sinful little guy, and I need the filling of your spirit right now. Would you fill me? And then at 10 o'clock in the morning, when I've forgotten about that prayer, I pray it again. Lord, I just got angry. <laughs> Would you fill me with your spirit? We are always to be filled with the spirit. But what about the voice? Passive voice. Let yourself be filled with the Spirit. You cannot be filled with the Spirit under your own strength. You have to allow yourself to be filled with the Spirit of God. You want to imitate God, Paul says? Well, walk in love, walk in light, walk with care. How do I do that? Let yourself be being filled with the Spirit. Yield to the Spirit of God day by day, moment by moment. Imitate God by His power, not your own. Amen? Well, God, we say thank you and praise you, and we ask that you would fill us and fill this church right now with yourself. And we pray that in the name of Christ for His glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.